turn in the scriptures now to Psalm 108. I'm going to focus on verse 9 as a theme for the sermon this morning, which is Moab is my washpot. Moab is my washpot. And I'll read the whole psalm as, uh, as the, the psalm coalesces around that idea and organizes it. Beginning to read that with verse 1. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand, and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Over Philistia I will triumph. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? Oh, and yes, you, O God, <coughs> uh, who did not go out with our armies. Give us help from trouble, for the help of man, for the help of man is useless. Through God, we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread out, uh, tread down our enemies. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. Um, we, in the midst of our weakness, we have these promises from God. And part of the promises of God is not just good news for the elect. It's not just good news for the saints. In God's promises, he also in almost a humorous way, given their foolish rebellion, God speaks to the ungodly of the world. God speaks to the reprobate, and he tells them ahead of time, what is their lot? This ought to terrify all of those who stand against Christ, who feel that he is overbearing, who feel that his reign is illegitimate, that he does not well enough celebrate the glory of man as man, or autonomous man, man separate from God, uh, that the, the, the Son does not rightfully give honor to all of those that want to live their lives without, without Christ. And he does that uh, in the midst of this psalm by saying, Moab is my wash pot. Um, a, 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 there's not a lot of water, casual water or uh, abundancy of water in the Middle East. Uh, they did not know what uh, uh, bathing was by and large as we do today with our, our torrents of water and showers and bathtubs and that sort of thing. Everybody everybody having a different uh, a change of water in their bath when they take their baths as a family. In this day, uh, most uh, cl cleansing was done uh, with a like a washcloth 
and then you would use uh, de detergents of some fashion that would help to clean the body, but you'd, you'd rinse out this washcloth in a wash pot and go back to it and just go until you had a whole, until your whole body had been washed using this process. Now, as you went through that, uh, much like in the Old West, where they, they did have bathtubs, or, well, they at least had these, these, uh, feeding things that horses would drink out of and that sort of thing that they could also use for uh, bathtubs. And, uh, but if you had a big family, you know, uh, dad and mom went first, uh, they were honored first, and then they, then they, the same water was used over and over again until you got down to the youngest children, and, and uh, they, uh, they sloshed it out, so to speak, in the, some of the the, dir the dirtier water from the rest of the family. Well, it was the same way in Palestine with these wash pots. And so the wash pot would, the first person would bathe and it would get, get washed off using these um, these uh, cloths and dish, pot, dish pots and or wash pots. And then the per next person would go and the next person. And, and so the water would get dirtier and dirtier. And at, at, the time, at the end of the process, they would not grab the wash pot and say, oh, great, here's our drink for lunch. Here's our water for lunch. No, it would be cast out. It would be thrown out because it was full of dirty water. Well, in this psalm, mocking those who have rebelled against God, mocking Moab, God calls Moab his wash pot. In other words, not only will he uh, tread on Moab, not only he says here with uh, Edom, uh, but he he will actually mock Moab by comparing her to uh, this wash pot. Now, where did Moab come from? Why would God speak that way about Moab? What is what is the what are the juicier elements here of of the coming to pass of this tribe named Moab? Well, we know that because Genesis. Uh, 19, I think it is. Um, oh, yes, Genesis 19.37 teaches us the story of how Moab came to be. Moab was the name of a little baby that was born. Moab was born to the oldest daughter of Lot, uh, who, had been, who was Abraham's cousin. And uh, Lot did not cherish the covenant enough to live where the heartland of God's people was, namely around Abraham, or near Abraham. So he would have closer fellowship with Abraham. He didn't run away from Abraham and just totally leave the area, but he moved to this city named Sodom, which became famous for its violence and its homosexuality. For men marrying men and women marrying women. And Lot lived there. And the, uh, the New Testament says that, that Lot grieved as he was living there. But even as he grieved, he did not leave uh, Sodom. Uh, nor did he openly preach against Sodom so that he might get thrown out or abused for his preaching. He just lived there. And he was too passive. He was uh, one of the Christian pacifists, quote, Christian pacifists that lives in the midst of the world, but does not complain loudly enough at the paganism around him. 
And so when God rained down his judgment upon Sodom, he warned Lot ahead of time to get out of town, which Lot did, although he lost his wife on the way because his wife was syncretized with the world and uh, she had an had a, a, a adoration for the things of the world. So she left, she kept looking back longingly at Sodom, this city of whoredom, looking back at Sodom until God finally turned her as a, by cursing her into a pillar of salt. So he loses his wife and he's going out uh, and he head, headed for the hills, the wilderness hills, uh, because Jericho, I mean, uh, because uh, Sodom is uh, uh, near the wilderness. And so uh, he headed for the hills and uh, with his two daughters. And then his daughters were filled up with syncretism too, this, this combination of worldliness and and uh, even while they know that the Lord exists, they do not really esteem him. And so they were living by themselves in the, in the mountains, kind of hiding from the terror that God had spread, uh, brought to Sodom. And uh, his oldest daughter began to be selfish and complain about things and say, here I am in the wilderness, and I have no child, I have no children. What am I going to do? And um, so she just... You know, sometimes we are demanding in our in our impulses. We we just have impulses that we think we've got to we've got to serve those impulses. It may be a desire to drink, it may be a desire to eat, it may be a desire to take drugs, but whatever, we are overcome by these compulsions. Brothers and sisters, beware of the things that are compulsive in our minds and our hearts. Our great compulsion ought to be the Lord and to serve the Lord. Well, the older sister just couldn't get control of herself. She wanted a baby, and she was going to have a baby, come whatever. Her compulsions, her desires were going to be met. So she looked around. The only man that was around was her father. So she decided to have intimacy and intercourse with her father. Her father at that time was overcome with drunkenness because of his depression and his discouragement. All of these things resulted because of his lack of closeness or proximity to the Lord. And so <clears throat> the older daughter seduced her father and the baby that came forth uh, was named Moab. Moab. This was not the finest day of the people of God, was it? It was a day when compulsions and and, and demands, human demands, overcame the known law of God at that time. And so um, Moab, as a child, became the father of a renegade species, half-brothers with the Israelites as they came to pass, uh, with the Abrahamic uh, part of the family. They were, they were related to them. Uh, they, but they were trying to take the covenant by force. They were trying to do what, live the way that they wanted to live and, and obtain the covenant. So, of course, that didn't work. And they became, they became like Judas Iscariot. They became traitors and persecutors of Israel so that they became famous antagonists to the people of God. Can you imagine Satan's delight? when he was working on 
the eldest daughter of Lot, there in the wilderness where they were camped out. Can you imagine the joy of Satan and his wicked glee at thinking that he had despoiled the people of God? He had not just some distant follower of Abraham, but he had Abraham's own relative, part of the family of Abraham. Why? And now he had gotten into his oldest daughter's mind and he had uh, seduced her, the thinking that this was the way of blessing. And she seduced her father in his drunkenness and had this baby that then became antagonist of Israel. And so when God mentions Moab here in verse 9, it is not without focus. Or not without purpose. For Moab was one of the great enemies of ancient Israel. Edom was the other one. Edom came from Esau. Jacob have I loved. And Esau, what? Have I hated? Esau became the enemy of his people also. He came from the Abrahamic line, from the from Jacob's line. He came. And um, so both of these men, were uh, enemies of God. They were, but they came from within the tribe. They were like Judas. They came from within the church of Christ, as it were, in that day. And they came to persecute Israel. And so God says to them, by way of disputing with both them and Satan, he says to them, Moab is become my washpot. I will wash the, the dirt off my people's hands and feet and bodies, and I will rinse the, the cloth in the water and the, the dirt and the grime shall come off them, and that shall be a metaphor or a picture of what happens to Moab. So God in this case is not celebrating Moab. He, he's not going along with Satan's version of reality. He's telling them, Moab will be mocked. She shall be like my dirty wash pot where the water is finally cast away and the wash pot is out behind the house somewhere waiting for the next washing of the family. Moab is my wash pot. Now I like this. And I think that this, this is given to us to strengthen us as the people of God so that we will know that God does not just, in the end, God does not just choose the righteous and give them heaven. But God chooses the reprobate. God chooses the traitors like Judas Iscariot. God chooses the renegades like the Moabites and the Edomites. And he judges them negatively, even as he judges his people positively. Even as his people stand before him in the garments of righteousness provided for them by the Lord Jesus Christ. The, 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 the ugly nudity of Edom and Moab will be seen. Edom is like my wash pot, he said. I mean, Moab is my wash pot. So that even as I lift up the elect, I will mock the reprobate. There are some people that just can't stomach this in this world. They just can't deal with it. They, they don't mind God saying that he will save his people from their sins. But they don't want God to be overly negative to the reprobate. They don't want God to to, to judge those who have fallen off from him. But this verse, Psalm 108, verse 9, 
Moab is my washpot. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I will triumph. It's God's proclamation to them that even as he will bless the one, he will curse the other. And it's up to us today. What will we do? Uh, God works through our minds and our convictions of sin. What will we do? Will we delight in the idea of Moab against all warning? Or will we heed this warning and uh, cling to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah here, as it's mentioned in verse 8? So, uh, this psalm has long been recognized as a psalm of victory, the victory of God and his people over all of the evil that broke forth in the Garden of Eden and then developed throughout the history of mankind. This is a psalm of victory. And this this uh, proclamation, Moab is my washpot, is one of the high points of that. Now, um, uh, the, the, the outline of the sermon follows from this. And all of these points follow from this. It, 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 this psalm teaches that victory is in the bag. That's why the Lord can say, uh, Moab is my washpot. Moab could not be wa- uh, reduced to this washpot of the Lord if her future was not certain, if her defeat was not certain. And uh, we see in verse 7 where God says, uh, God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. So there's an ascending order there up to Judah from whence our Lord Jesus Christ would come. And then there's a descending order uh, from the wickedness of Moab, the wickedness of Edom, to then the wickedness of the world. Philistia was not related to Moab. They were, of course, related to Noah, ultimately. But Philistia was just one of the pagan nations of the day. So Moab is my washpot. Edom is my footstool. God tells us in the New Testament that that, that, uh, Jesus will reign until all men confess and all all tongues confess uh, until the, the, uh, the, the kingdom of darkness is his footstool. And so... Here we see the Old Testament antecedent to that with this picture of Edom being uh, the one who, upon whom he will cast his shoe. He will walk over Edom. And to this day, based upon this idea and this metaphor, to this day in the, um, in the Middle Eastern cultures, to take your shoe off and to shake it is a sign of the curse. Uh, this was done one time by one of the um, uh, Arabic leaders to one of our diplomats uh, in the, I think it was the 1990s. I can't remember the exact situation there, but it still goes on. It comes from this. Uh, pardon? That's true. Yeah, and, and it comes from this idea of this text and uh, the idea of, of walking on your enemies. When you walk over your enemies, you, you show utter disdain to them by your power over them. So victory is in the bag, first of all. Uh, this psalm, although it does not develop a Christology or an obvious Christology, it, it says in, in verse uh, verse 4, uh, I, well, he says, I will sing praises to you among the nations, verse 4, for your mercy is great upon the heavens. So it starts out by talking about how victory is in the bag. Oh God, let my, my heart 
heart is steadfast, I will stand. I will sing and give praise, even, even my glory. Awake, lute and harp, it's calling for the orchestra to awaken the, the instruments. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. How is this going to come to pass? Verse 4, for your mercy is great above the heavens. God's mercy will bring this about. And then God's mercy is explained in verse 6 where he says, Save uh, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. Who is the right hand of the Lord? Our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's pointed to in this Psalm 108. So victory is in the bag. Victory comes by the mercy of God and by his right hand, even Jesus, who comes into the world to win redemption for his people. And... Uh, but the, the, the part of the reason why the psalm was instituted like this, it's instituted for our faith that it might strengthen our faith. And we see that in verses 1 through 4, where the, the people of God are excited by the presence of the Lord. And then verse 7 through 9, um, God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. Uh, I will divide Shechem and, and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. So God excites the people of God. He excites their faith. As he talks of this victory over evil, um, they their, their, their faith is excited. And that's one of the necessities of our day. Uh, too infrequently in our, in our evangelical churches do we speak of the victory of God over evil in this world. We speak of it in, in, in eternity, but why not in this world? God says that he will make the earth his footstool, that he will step on. And in Psalms like this in the Old Testament, he says that he will that He will be victorious over the rebellion of the world, even the rebellion that began in his own family of Moab. And so there is victory Victory affects our faith. Victory encourages. If, if you don't think that you, anything you do in your life is going to affect world history, that all you have, all you can wait for is the final resurrection or the, the corruption of that, the rapture. If you don't think that anything that you do is going to affect the world until uh, the, the one rapture or the other, well then, what are you going to do in this world? But if you if you have the feeling, if you have the persuasion of mind. That God is going to be victorious over Moab in this world, then you're willing to lift your weapons against Moab in this world. You're willing to preach the doctrines of Christ because you know that at some point the doctrines of Christ will be supreme and they will overcome these lies and the false gospels of this world. So, so knowing, understanding victory affects our faith. One of the reasons why our faith is so latent and why the, the church is so passive today, why the church is so reluctant to speak the truth in love to its neighbors, is because it's not fully persuaded of its victory. But here in this psalm it says, Moab is my washbowl, my washpan, uh, my, um, <clears throat> my washpot. And God tells us this to encourage us in our faith. It also, for number four, it also encourages our sanctification. Verse 13, look at that. At the very end of the psalm, Through God we will do valiantly, for He, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. See, God would encourage us, 
us to be more faithful, more true, more hopeful, more brave. And when we fight Satan and, and crucify the flesh, we are doing well in this battle for sanctification. Likewise, in verse 13, we see victory for our success, which ties into uh, uh, point three, um, because we shall be successful, and the church shall be successful, and even though we have setbacks for a time, we ought to focus on the God's promises and uh, God's promises of success and anticipating our final victory over evil. Nothing shakes the satanic more than to see weak Christians who are see, they seemingly like putty in their hands. We don't have the armies of the world. We don't have the armaments of the world. We're often, like even our Lord Jesus, we're often chased from Israel to Egypt in order to stay alive. But nothing scares and terrifies Satan more than to see people like this who are driven this way and that way, who don't have any place to lay their head. And yet, when they raise up in the morning, they have a smile upon their face. Nothing jars Satan's confidence more than the confidence of the saints in their frailty. Brothers and sisters, where are we weakest? Where do you feel weakest in your life? Believe that Moab is my washpot and rejoice in even laugh about that. Be, see it as a, a stroke of God's divine humor. Moab is my wash pot. Moab is the collection pot for dirty water. I shall rise with Christ in the end. And uh, and that's the last point. Uh, victory, God, the church's victory, the church's glory. Throughout this psalm, verse 3, verse 3, verse 5, verse 13, the church of Christ is swept up. We're all of us as individuals, when we become hopeful and when we become confident, then we are together become a happy band, a happy fellowship, happy in the Lord. And uh, absolutely unnerving to Satan and his demons. We'll send them to the psych wards of this world <laughs> as they try to as they try to deal with the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ and his holy father who have made a covenant together and we see in uh, Psalm 111 if you have your Bibles open just a page or two later Psalm 111 verse verse 9 um it says, he has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. And uh, Psalm, uh, Psalm 110, just before that, uh, says in verse 3, um, or verse 4, the Lord has sworn, that is, uh, Jehovah has sworn, I will and will not re relent. You, that is his son, are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. The Son is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. That's why we sang Psalm 2 to begin with. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore he shall lift up his head. The Son will be in peace, absolute peace and shalom, even as he judges uh, the nations. 
And so uh, we see that God's victory is secure, and we see that uh, this is spoken of, and it's all based upon this oath that was sworn by the, by the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father, the eternal covenant of redemption. Let us rejoice together then in our lives, brothers and sisters. Let us not be downtrodden. Moab may step on some of us today. Moab may depress us, may discourage us here and there. But in the end, Moab shall be God's washpot. Let us laugh and let us rejoice. Our Father and our God, we pray that we would be lifted up by this image that Moab holds the dirty water. That Moab is a pot, a collection pot for dirty things. That the dirt of Moab's heart will one day be known by the dirt of her garments. The dirt of that eternal curse that lays upon her head. Bless us, O Lord, in Christ, even as thou dost curse Moab. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.